0: Exodus chapter 32 today, this is the word of the Lord. Now when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people assembled about Aaron and said to him, Come, make us a God who will go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up from the land of Egypt, we don't know what's happened to him, what's become of him. Verse 2 Then Aaron said to them Tear off the gold rings which are in the ears of your wives and your sons and your daughters and bring them to me and Then all the people tore off the gold rings which were in their ears and brought them to Aaron he took them He took this from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made it into a molten calf And they said This is your god O Israel who brought you up from the land of Egypt Now when Aaron saw this he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to Yahweh, a feast to the Lord. So the next day they rose early and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Then Yahweh, then the Lord, spoke to Moses, Go down at once for your people whom you brought up from the land of Egypt, have corrupted themselves. They have quickly turned aside from the way which I commanded them. They have made for themselves a molten calf and have worshipped it and have sacrificed to it and said, this is your God, O Israel, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. The Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people and behold, they are an obstinate people. Now then let me alone that my anger may burn against them and that I may destroy them and I will make of you a great nation. Then Moses entreated the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your anger burn against your people whom you have brought out from the land of Egypt with a great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians speak saying with evil intent he brought them out to kill them in the mountains and to destroy them in the face, uh, from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and change your mind about doing harm to your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by yourself and said to them, I will multiply your descendants as stars of the heavens. and all this land which I have spoken, I will give to your descendants and they shall inherit it forever. So the Lord changed his mind about the harm which he said he would do to his people. Then Moses turned and went down from the mountain with two tablets of the testimony in his hand. Tablets which were written on both sides. They were written on one side and the other. The tablets were God's work. And the writing was God's writing engraved on the tablets. Now when Joshua heard the sound of the people as they shouted, he said to Moses, there's a sound of war in the camp. But he said, it's not the sound of the cry of triumph. Nor is it the sound of the cry of defeat, but the sound of singing I hear. It came about as soon as Moses came near the camp that he saw the calf and the dancing. And Moses' anger burned, and he threw the tablets from his hands and shattered them at the foot of the mountain. He took the calf which they had made and burned it with fire and ground it to powder and scattered it over the surface of the water and made the sons of Israel drink it. Then Moses said to Aaron, what did this people do to you that you've brought such great sin upon them? Aaron said, do not let the Lord, do not let the anger of my Lord burn. You know the people yourself. They are prone to evil. For they said to me, make a God for us who will go before us. For this Moses, this man who brought us up from the land of Egypt, we don't know what's become of him. I said to them, whoever has any gold, let them tear it off. So they gave it to me and I threw it in the fire and out came this calf. Now when Moses saw that the people were out of control, for Aaron had let them get out of control to be a derision among among their enemies, Then Moses stood in the gates of the camp and said, Whoever is for the Lord, come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered together to him. He said to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Every man of you put his sword upon his thigh and go back and forth from gate to gate in the camp and kill every man his brother and every man his friend and every man his neighbor. So the sons of Levi did as Moses instructed, and about 3,000 men of the people fell that day. Then Moses said, Dedicate yourselves today to the Lord, for every man has been against his son and against his brother in order that he may bestow a blessing upon you today. On the next day, Moses said to the people, You yourselves have committed a great sin. Now I'm going up to the Lord, and perhaps I can make atonement for your sin then Moses returned to the Lord and said, Alas, this people has committed a great sin. They have made a God of gold for themselves. But now, if you will, forgive their sin. And if not, please blot me out from your book which you have written. The Lord said to Moses, Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot him out of my book. But go now. Leave the people where I told you. Behold, my angel shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I punish, I will punish them for their sin. And then the Lord smote the people because of what they did with the calf which Aaron had made. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, for most of us, when we think of idolatry, the kind of thing that comes to mind is uh, people bowing down in front of altars and statues and symbols and images of false deities. But idolatry can really take on more subtle forms as well sometimes an idol can be as invisible as a fleeting thought but whatever form it takes two things i know for sure about idol worship number one none of us are immune to it number two it is destructive In our text today, the idolatry that's on display here is not that of some primitive, uncivilized group of pagans who live isolated from any biblical truth about God. I remind you, these are God's own covenant people. These aren't people who can argue that they just haven't seen enough evidence to worship the one true God. No, he's just performed one miracle after another for their exclusive audience and benefit. These aren't people who can say, we just didn't know any better. He'd given them the law, ten commandments, the first three of which all dealt with idolatry. And even before the law was given, you remember, they said, we'll obey everything the Lord says. And here we are, less than six weeks later, they break out into full-blown cow worship. Well, bull worship, to be more accurate. But friends, we have to confess that if the Old Testament Israelites could so easily fall into such a gross demonstration of idolatry after all they had seen and experienced, then New Testament Christians are not immune to the same potential. It was, after all, to Christian people that the Apostle John tenderly wrote, little children, guard yourselves from idols. And the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians ten six that the things experienced by this Exodus generation happened as examples for us so that we would not crave evil things as they also craved. So, let's consider the example that they have left us here about the destructiveness of idolatry so that we might heed that New Testament admonition to guard ourselves from idols in our own lives. The first thing we see in the text is the, the circumstances that give rise to idolatry. Why do people worship idols? Well, it's actually quite simple. Idolatry is the default religious setting for every person in the world. In fact, Bernard Ram said that the world itself is one immense idol. John Calvin says man's nature is a perpetual factory of idols. Romans 1, Paul says that every person can see through the evidence in themselves and the world around them that there is an invisible, all-powerful, holy God who exists. But even though everybody knows that this being exists, Paul says, They did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. And so that's why wherever human beings are found, no matter where they live, wherever they're found, they can be found worshiping images of human-like or animal-like figures represented in artwork or carvings from wood or stone. They have exchanged the worship of the Creator for the worship of creation. But our focus here is not to explain why anyone and everyone in the world resorts to idolatry. It's to examine why, of all people, those who profess to know God personally can so easily slide into this destructive practice? How is it that we ourselves, while professing to be in covenant relationship with God, can't shut down the idol factory that's always cranking them out in our hearts and minds? And so we see some of the circumstances that give rise to idolatry in our lives. And the first one that we see is impatience to wait on the Lord. Now, from Exodus twenty four eighteen, we know that Moses was on the mountain alone with God for 40 days. Let's call it six weeks, give or take. Six weeks. God had called Moses to go up. He didn't say, come up for a six-week sabbatical. He didn't say how long this was going to take. But when Moses told the people what he was about to do, the people said to Moses, all the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. Then one week goes by, two weeks go by. Three weeks go by, six weeks go by, and they start talking about Moses like he was some stranger in the night. This Moses fellow, whoever he was, he talked us into coming out of Egypt and we fell for it, hook, lines, and single. Now he's just abandoned us, we don't know what's become of him. But neither Moses nor the Lord had abandoned the people. In fact, far from it, God was actually instructing Moses on the right way for these people to worship him. Everything from chapter 24 to the present chapter deals with the construction of the tabernacle and the ministry of worship that was to take place in it. God was giving them instructions on how they were supposed to be worshiping and how they were to live as worshipful people, but he wasn't doing it fast enough. So they said... Let's just have somebody make us a God. Friends, God does not operate on our timetable. Uh, Sometimes He moves slower than we think He should. And when He doesn't meet our deadlines, we can be tempted to look for alternatives to Him. We give up waiting for the Lord and we seek to do things our own way. And we can find deities who will approve of our timetable when he does not. So, our impatience to wait on the Lord can give rise to idolatry. And the second circumstance is the vacuum of spiritual leadership. Now, the people had a leader, Aaron. When Moses went up on the mountain, the Lord instructed that the people should bring their concerns to Aaron in Moses' absence. He held the position of authority. God had put him in that position. But Aaron demonstrates that he was not fit for the position. And for one thing, he lacked courage. The people come to him and they said, make a God for us who will go before us. There's a simple answer to that. No. (laughs) No. Uh, a spiritual leader has to have the courage to stand up to these kind of pressures and and to be strong in the Lord. Sometimes the best thing a leader can do for his people is tell them no and aaron didn 't do that. Not only did he lack courage, he also lacked conviction. A strong spiritual leader is not afraid to take bold stands because he knows at the end of the day he has stood on the authority of god 's word. Aaron knew the word of the Lord, he knew the commandments. Make no other gods. Make no graven images. Don't take the Lord's name in vain. But he compromised at every point of those commandments because he didn't have the conviction to stand on God's truth and the authority of God's Word. So what he should have said was, you already have a God. He's the one that has brought you up out of Egypt. He's the one that has spoken and told you how He wants you to live. And this is what he said. You ready? Open your tablets Two, you know, they were. you're not the first generation to look at the Bible on tablets. They were doing that long ago. The, you know, power on your tablet and flip it back to the Ten Commandments and see number one, two, three, click on the hyperlinks. They're there, all right? No other gods, no graven images. Don't take his name in vain, right? Everybody see that? But he didn't do that. In fact, from all that we can tell, these six weeks elapsed, without any exposition of God's Word at all among the people. Now, there's a frequently quoted and almost invariably misunderstood verse in Proverbs that illustrates exactly what's going on here. Proverbs 29, 18. Most familiar expression of this is the King James, which says, "...where there is no vision, the people perish." And Christian leaders have long abused that passage to mean that in order to lead people well... We have to have some radical vision or creative plan for the future. But this has nothing to do with what the proverb is saying. In fact, it may mean exactly opposite of the intended message. Because the Hebrew word that's translated vision in the King James really should be understood as revelation. And the word that's translated perish is more accurately translated in newer versions as cast off restraint. So the idea is that where God's revelation is not being made known, the people become unrestrained in how they think and live. God's revelation is that which he has made known about himself and his will in his declared word. And where His Word is not being made known, people begin to think all kinds of things about God and they begin to do all kinds of things assuming that they have His permission to do it. Moses is on the mountain for six weeks. Biblical exposition is silent before the people. So they say, hmm, let's get us another God who will approve of the unrighteous desires of our sinful nature. So verse 6 says that the people sat down to eat and to drink, and rose up to play. That's what a lot of people want to do with their lives. Sit around eating and drinking and then spend a lot of time playing. Uh, this is actually uh, a little bit tricky. I have got to be careful here because this statement verse 6 about sitting down to eat and drink and rising up to play, this, these are euphemistic expressions. Uh, Essentially, what it means is, is with this new God created by Aaron, they could become lazy and gluttonous. They could engorge themselves on food and intoxicate themselves with drink while they laid around. And they only would exert any energy to get up and actually do something to play. Now, the idea is not that they were playing church league softball. This word play, if you look at where this word is used, the Hebrew word is used in other passages of the Old Testament. It's almost always used in explicitly sexual connotations. So essentially what's going on here is that the covenant people of God have cast off all moral restraint and given full license to their sinful desires. You know, people like a God who will let them do whatever they want. And if we're not willing to deny ourselves and reckon ourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ, we will fashion in our imaginations, if nowhere else, a false deity who either heartily approves of or else gives a wink and a nod toward our sin. And all this happens where there's a vacuum of spiritual leadership. Aaron didn't have the guts or the backbone to lead these people by feeding them on the word of the Lord. The same is true in many churches today where genuine spiritual leadership is lacking. Just like with Aaron, uh, the gifts of God are elevated to such an extent that they draw devotion away from God the giver. He says, you want a God? Give me the gold. Where'd they get the gold? God gave him the gold. And then he made a God out of the gold. In many cases, keeping people happy becomes more important than keeping them holy. Let's just give them what they want. The Word of God is drowned out by the clamor of carnal desire. And even where good and godly leaders are present, there is this epidemic that affects every church. Professing believers withdrawing themselves from the oversight of spiritual leadership through the coldness of fellowship or chronic absenteeism. This is something that we have made a priority and tried to address very clearly for as long as I've been here and in churches I've served before here. Listen, the writer of Hebrews wasn't just whistling Dixie when he said that we should not, we must not abandon the for the, the gathering of ourselves together. Not forsake the gathering of ourselves together. You may say, Well, I don't need the church. You do. You do. You say, I don't think so. Well, I think you're wrong. And I think you may not know how much you need the church. And you say, well, there's no sense in me going there today. I mean, the guy just gets up and he says the same thing. For It takes a long time to say it. And he says the same thing over and over every Sunday. And he may. But don't discount your need to hear the same thing said over and over again. Because by that repeated truth... God might be drilling his truth into your brain to protect you against the slide into idolatry. You need the church. You need the word. And where there is not a conviction and courageous, uh, a convicted and courageous leadership to feed God's people on his truth, or where people remove themselves from it, it is not a far fall into idolatry and immorality. So we see, secondly, the destructiveness of idolatry. You saw the circumstances that give rise to it, now the destructiveness of it. Sometimes uh, when Donya and I go out to run in the mornings, we have some interesting conversations. And just the other day I was telling her that I think it's high time for me to pursue my Ph.D. and write a dissertation on sarcasm in the Bible. And, and of course, she thought I was being sarcastic. And with me, you never can tell. But the Bible is full of sarcasm. If you know what to look for, one of my favorite pieces of biblical sarcasm concerns idolatry. It's in Isaiah 44. And there we read a story about a man who planted a tree. And then the day came that he went out to cut down the tree, and he cut it in half. And with half of the tree, he built a fire. And he warmed himself over the fire, and he roasted meat over the fire, and he baked bread over the fire. And then he had another half of the tree that he says, what can I do with this? So he took it and made it into a god and fell down before it to worship. And Isaiah says he also prays to it and says, deliver me, for you are my God. The Lord says that this man lacks understanding to realize I've burned half of it in the fire, and the rest I made into an abomination. I'm falling down before a block of wood. The psalmist has the same kind of sarcastic view of the idolater. Psalm 115, he describes idols that have mouths, but they cannot speak. They have eyes, but they cannot see. They have ears, but they cannot hear. They have noses, but they cannot smell. They have hands, but they cannot feel. They have feet, but they cannot walk. So we have these gods who are senseless, powerless, speechless, deaf, dumb, blind, lame. And then the psalmist says, those who make them will become like them. So you you can imagine the Israelites carousing in drunken perversion before this golden bull saying to one another, you know, God must really be okay with this because he isn't telling us to stop it. It's because he can't. He has a mouth, but he can't speak. You're worshiping a statue. And Aaron demonstrates himself to be as dumb as the rest of them. Because when Moses confronts him about this idolatry that's taking place under his watch, Aaron has the audacity to say, I threw the gold into the fire and out came this calf. This is where I wish we had pictures in the Bible. Because I want to see the look on Moses' face. You you expect me to believe? You know, when people abandon truth, they believe anything. And I don't know if Aaron really believed this, or if he thought Moses would believe this. But I hear people say things sometimes. And you know... They think they're sounding spiritual. And so they, they know they're talking to a Christian. They're, oh, they're talking to a preacher. So they want to dress it up really spiritually, you know, and they want to talk about how God gave them the sign or God sent a message or, you know, and it was like it was like I heard God speak. And and I saw the angel sitting at the foot of my bed. You know, it's like, listen, the more you go on, the more I think you're making this up. Because. God doesn't work that way. God doesn't just let gold like turn into a cow and walk out of a fire. That's you find a place in the Bible where God ever did anything remotely like that. God doesn't do that kind of thing. So by over-spiritualizing it, He gives the lie to it. Aaron and the rest of the people have become as blind and dumb as the gods they've made. Now, when we read these sarcastic passages, when we read... Aaron's bold-faced lie. I mean, it's all I can do to not laugh when I read Aaron says, How came this calf? You know. But we need to consider it from God's perspective. Because he has a perspective. He it did not escape his notice. Moses didn't have a clue what's going on. God had to fill Moses in on what was going on down there. Look, this is what they're doing. He always knows. And our sin never escapes his notice. But when, when when God takes notice of what they're doing, it's no laughing matter. After all that He's done for His people, He watches them turn their backs on Him in self-destructive idolatry. So it's no wonder He deals severely with it. Look what He calls it. He says they've corrupted themselves, verse 7. They've turned aside, verse 8. They are obstinate, verse 9. Verse 25 describes them as being out of control, verse 30. Moses calls it a great sin before the Lord. So the destructiveness of idolatry is symbolized here by three significant actions that Moses carries out. First of all, he demonstrates that the people have destroyed their covenant with God. So Moses comes down from the mountain. He's carrying with him tablets containing God's law that have been inscribed by God's own hand. Is there? You know, I've been cleaning out my books in my in my study, and uh, and I've been asking people, "Come get some books! Come get some books!" And so a guy came over the other day. He finds a Billy Graham book on the shelf, and uh, and 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 he opens it up, and he says, "I I think you have something valuable here." I said, "I, I said I, I I don't need that book. You know, I, I have other books that are better than that one." And he says, "No, this is really valuable." I said, I, "Why do you think it's so valuable?" He says, "Look, he shows it to me. It's." We we think we think it's signed by Billy Graham. It doesn't look like a stamp. And if somebody faked it, very good faker. It looks exactly like his signature on there. Well, I let him have it. He was like, "Why? Let me pay you for it." And he paid me for some other things. Paid me more than enough. And I felt good about letting him have it. You take it. You take it. It's of no value to me. Listen, Billy Graham's signature on a book—that's a pretty big deal. God's own handwriting on a tablet of stone. Infinitely bigger deal. Is there anything more valuable on the face of the earth at any point in history? Is a gold-plated bull comparable to the handwritten tablet of God's own word in his own hand? But to demonstrate the destruction that the people had brought upon their covenant with God. Moses takes these invaluable tablets and smashes them on the ground. Smashes them there on the rocks at the foot of the mountain. So some commentators go to great lengths here and say, Well, Moses really lost his cool. He he let his anger get the best of him. Well, the Bible doesn't say that. In fact, On another occasion, Moses would lose his cool and let his anger get the best of him, and he would pay the price for it. God dealt severely with Moses. In fact, Moses didn't get to go into the promised land because of that. But it doesn't happen here. In fact, as much as we can tell from our text, Moses was entirely acting on God's authority, destroying these tablets in order to illustrate that the people have destroyed their covenant with God. And so Moses was demonstrating to the people look, you can't just look at God's law like it's a list of things that you can pick and choose which parts you're going to believe and which parts you're going to obey. You can't just break a commandment because if you do, you shatter them all because they're all interdependent and interconnected. So they destroyed their covenant. Moses demonstrated that by destroying the tablets. Then notice that Moses destroyed their idol. You've got to be careful. Worshiping a God who can be destroyed. That's a good question about whether or not you have an idol in your life. Can I burn it, grind it to power, throw it in water and drink it? If I can, it's probably an idol. Definitely an idol. One of the greatest guarantees that we have of our redemption in Christ is that he is indestructible. Death itself could not destroy the Lord Jesus. But Moses takes the golden bull... And he burns it in a fire. And then he grinds it into powder. And so God will do with all rivals for the worship that he alone deserves. He will see to it that all of them come to nothing. But what Moses does next is somewhat confusing. Because he took the powder of the idol's remnants. And he scattered it over the water and made the sons of Israel drink it. What's the meaning of this? Remember, these are symbolic acts. I mean, they literally happened. It's real history. But these actions had symbolic meanings. And uh, this was a message to the people. And again, I have to be delicate, sensitive here. But the idea is that the people take the God that they've been worshiping and they ingest this God. This God goes into their digestive system and, and then eventually becomes what it truly is. Everybody with me? Good. I wrestled with the right word to use in a forum like this. Excrement is the best I could come up with. Excrement. Now, you could carry the metaphor further by recalling that the idol was in the form of a bull. But the point is already sufficiently made. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. God gave these people gold to provide for their needs, and they worship the gold. Philippians 3, Paul says, before I was a Christian, I used to boast in all these accomplishments and all these claims. And what he's saying there is I was really worshipping myself. But he says that after coming to know Christ, he's able to count all of those things that he formerly boasted in as rubbish. But the translators of most of our English Bibles think that your sensitivities are too delicate to handle the actual meaning of the word. It is not rubbish like you throw into the can under your sink in the kitchen. It is rubbish like you flush down the commode. The Greek word is skubalon. It means the same thing that we're describing here. If you you want to see your love for something come to nothing... If you want to see the object of your affection and devotion come to nothing and less than nothing, you just elevate it above the Lord in your devotion, and your affection. Because He won't allow it to stand. He will bring it to nothing and show it for what it truly is. So, covenants destroyed. Their idol is destroyed. Not only does the idol become what it truly is, and I think we've said enough about that, Remember, the psalmist said that people become like what they worship. So if we worship the Lord Jesus in spirit and in truth, we become more like Jesus. If we worship a deaf, dumb idol, we become like that idol. This idol has been destroyed and made waste. And so it will be with those who worship it. Verse 10, the Lord tells Moses, Let me alone that my anger may burn against them and that I may destroy them. And we see him carry this out, at least in part, in the latter portion of the chapter where 3,000 men were slain by the swords of their own kinsmen. That's a severe judgment. But we have to confess two things. First of all, it's not as severe as it could have been. Secondly, it may not have been as severe as it should have been. Idolatry deserves nothing less than severe judgment because ultimately it's a coup against the God of heaven who has vowed that he will not share his glory with another. And it's almost like we're daring him to prove it whenever we give our affections to idols. So the slaying of these men is a minute depiction of the horrors of judgment that awaits all who refuse to surrender to the sovereign authority and saving grace of the one true God. Remember Jesus said, do not fear those who kill the body, but are unable to kill the soul. Okay, So 3,000 of them had their bodies killed. That's bad. Jesus said, no, rather fear him who is able to destroy both body and soul in hell. That's worse. If idolatry brings upon itself such swift and severe destruction and the deserved judgment of God, and if we are all inclined to such idolatry, then we we, we may wonder, what hope do we have to escape the justice of God's wrath? And on this subject, the text is not silent either. So we move on finally to the rescue from idolatry. You read any portion of God's law and it has an effect on you. Now, if the effect that it has on you, like let's just say you read the Ten Commandments and let's say that the effect that that has on you is the same as what it had on the rich young ruler who said to Jesus, all these things I've kept from my youth, I'm good. Then you've missed the point. Remember, 1 John says if we say that we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. That's why it doesn't do you any service to pretend like you've got it all together because everybody knows that none of us do. So you might as well be honest about that. I had to take like a psychological evaluation a few weeks ago and the person who administered it said, I passed by the way, but the person who administered it said, don't you try to impress me with your answers on here. And I said, I'm a Christian. I don't have to try to impress anybody. Right? So you, don't, you don't have to try to impress anybody because we don't have it all together. If we say we've not sinned, we, we, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. John says if we say that we have not sinned, we make God a liar and his word is not in us. So we can admit we don't have it all together. The, the, we should. We have to admit it. The intended effect of reading the law is not to say, I'm pretty good. It's rather to humble us because it shows us that we're not as good as we think we are. It is to silence us because it shows us that we have nothing to boast of before God. And it shows us that we are hopeless apart from a divinely appointed mediator. We have no hope before God unless God acts on our behalf to save us. Now, it should not escape our notice. That in God's private dialogue with Moses, in verses 7-14, through he says, I'm going to destroy Israel and I'm going to start all over from scratch and make a new nation out of you, Moses, instead of Abraham, like I promised. Now, certainly, because God is God, he can do whatever he wants to do. He doesn't need my permission or your permission or Moses' permission to do it. But because he's God, one thing he can never do is contradict himself by acting against his own nature or invalidating any of his promises. So when he said this to Moses, it was something of a test of Moses' faith and dedication to the Lord. Awfully tempting, don't you think? Hmm, God's going to start over with a brand new nation from me. I think that's something that goes through the heads of a lot of pastors, and they begin to entertain the notion of church planting. I would know because I've talked to them. I would never have thoughts like this myself because I have it all together. Right? But you think, you know, dealing with these people who just don't get it, I should just start over from scratch. New people. I'll do it my way and they'll get it. They'll get it. And my way will be right. And then we'll have a good church because I'll start over and do it my way. In their efforts to produce a perfect church, they fail because the very first member of the new church, the planter himself, is just as sinful at the core of his heart than anyone in his former church was. And see, Moses understood this. He knew, if you start all over with me, God, you're in no better shape than you are with this group of people because I'm no better than Abraham and I'm no better than any of the rest of them. So mm, don't do that. Don't do that. So Moses rises to the test and he demonstrates a surprising degree of spiritual perception here. And that's exactly what the Lord wanted him to do. Moses becomes an intercessor for the people. He doesn't say, yeah, Lord, let's get it. Burn, baby, burn. Start all over with me. Good idea. No, he says, Lord, you can't do this. You can't destroy Israel. You can't start over with me. And he intercedes on three counts. Number one, verse 11, he appeals to God on the basis of God's purpose. He says, you brought these people up out of Egypt with a strong and mighty hand. You can't go back on that now. You were doing something and you can't give up on it. Verse 12, he appeals to God on the basis of his nature. He says essentially, look, what are the Egyptians going to say? They're going to think dishonorable thoughts about you and claim that you're an evil deity if you do this thing. Thirdly, he appeals to God. In verse 13, on the basis of God's promise, he says, remember what you promised Abraham, Isaac, and Israel and their descendants. In verse 14, says the Lord changed his mind. Now, don't get carried away by that into thinking that God's unpredictable and capricious and you never know one day you might think one thing, the next day the next. No, this is an instance of what's called anthropopathism. That's a big word that's not fun to say, but it's speaking of God as though he had human feelings. It's a way of putting God's truth on the bottom shelf for our easy grasp. Suffice to say, God had intended this to be a test of Moses, and Moses passed the test by rising up as an intercessor, an intermediary for the people of God. Now, as the intermediary between the people and God, Moses represents God to them and them to God. He, He represented the people first by interceding for them, But then verses 25 through 29, he had to represent the Lord before the people because it goes both ways. And we've already noted how that included the swift and severe act of judgment by which 3,000 men were slain by the sword. And we've already noted that though that was swift and severe and certainly appropriate, it was not as bad as it could have been or maybe should have been. 3,000 men, that's a lot of men. That's a lot of people. But... 3,000 men compared to the total number of people in the Exodus generation. You realize that's a small percentage. Exodus twelve thirty-seven says there were 600,000 men who were part of this entourage, not counting women and children. 600,000, of 3,000, we're talking about five out of every thousand. So, so the text certainly implies that there were far more people than that involved in the idolatry. So why was the judgment not f- more far-reaching? Why did only five out of every thousand experience this judgment when certainly more than that were guilty? And and the answer is in the text here. It's in every thread of God's judgment there's an offer for repentance and redemption. Verse 26, before the order for the slaughter is given, Moses says, whoever is for the Lord, come to me. And notice that there's no no fine print or red tape here. He doesn't say, look, let's talk about what you were doing yesterday. Let's talk about what you've done up to this point. He doesn't say, let's talk about what role you played in this whole golden bull ordeal. He says, right here, right now, if you're on the Lord's side, you come to me. And those who were, did, and they were spared. And so then we see the next day, verses 30-35, to Moses as the intercessor, he says to the people, You've committed a great sin, and I'm going to go up to the Lord, and perhaps, perhaps, perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. You see, that's what we need. We need atonement. The word means you take two things that aren't together and you bring them together at one at one, at one atonement. At one point. It's to make peace with God by removing the sin that separates us from Him and securing His favor in the place of the judgment that's deserved. Moses says, perhaps, maybe I can do that for you. And so so he went to the Lord. He confessed on behalf of the people. He said, alas, this people has committed a great sin. They've made a God of gold for themselves. He, He didn't minimize it, didn't gloss it over. But now he says, if you will, forgive their sin. He's seeking this on behalf of the people. Not himself. He wasn't there. Remember, he was up on the mountain with God. He didn't do this, but he's seeking forgiveness on their behalf. And then in the greatest act of intercession that Moses ever performed, he says to the Lord, If you won't forgive them, then blot me out of your book which you have written. And that book is the register of God's own people. Those who have life in Him, abundant and eternal. Moses says, I'm willing for you to treat me as though I don't belong in that book so that you might treat these idolaters as though they do belong in that book. That's pretty impressive. Wouldn't you be impressed if somebody came before you pleading like that on behalf of another? It's an interesting thing. It didn't seem like God was very impressed. His answer to Moses is a somewhat surprising no. Moses says, blot me out of the book. God says, "Mm, whoever has sinned against me, I'll blot him out of the book. In other words, I can't blot you out in exchange for them. If I blot you out, Moses, it's going to be because of what you've done, not because of what they've done. You have sins of your own that must be dealt with. So you can't sacrifice yourself in their place. God requires a perfect sacrifice as a substitute, and Moses is not it. Aren't you glad your ultimate and eternal hopes don't hang on Moses? Aren't you glad your ultimate and eternal hopes don't hang on somebody who says, "Mm, let me see what I can do, perhaps I can make atonement. Now when we were cut off from God by our sins, when we were standing in the line of fire of a well-deserved eternal judgment, the Lord Jesus Christ came to be for us what Moses never could What Moses shows us here, in fact, is just a foretaste of the more perfect intercessor who would say to the Father on our behalf, do not destroy them for the sake of your name and your glory and your promise. No, instead, treat me as they deserve and treat them as I deserve. And because the sinless Son of God offered His own self as our substitute, God the Father was pleased to make atonement for our sins in the blood of His cross. Christ took the penalty for us. He offers His perfect righteousness in exchange. And so with arms outstretched, dying for you, bleeding for you on the cross, the Lord Jesus is saying to you, whoever is on the Lord's side, come to Me. Doesn't matter what you've done. Doesn't matter where you've been. Doesn't matter who or what you worshipped until this very moment. The Lord Jesus is offering you atonement and redemption if you will turn from sin and come to Him by faith what the law could not do, what Moses could not do, Jesus Christ has done for all who trust in Him. He can rescue you from your idolatry and immorality if you come to Him. You say, how do you know? Because He did it for me. And He promised He'll do it for anyone who turns to Him. If you're already a follower of Jesus, listen, you're not immune to idolatry. Because you can grow impatient with the Lord's timing just like the Israelites did. Stop waiting on Him and look for somebody or something that will do things your way in your time. You can grow cold and deaf to His Word. Pursue your own desires instead of His. It's no less destructive for us as believers than it is for the world. And so the offer for repentance is there for us as well. Return to the Lord. If you're on the Lord's side, return to Him. Enthrone Him afresh and alone as Lord over your life. The sole object of your devotion and affection. He says, if you are for the Lord, come to me. So let's come to Jesus. Let's pray.